This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvel, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast. And whenever I hear that quote from Dan Andrews, I think never a truer word, PK. I'm pretty excited this morning, PK. Political reporter with The Guardian, Amy Ramikas, is joining us in the party room to talk about, well, a number of things, but including reopening of state borders, hotel quarantine, and that campaign by former Finance Minister Matthias Cormann to become the new head, the Secretary-General of the OECD. It's becoming a bit of a pricey campaign, which we'll it get is. into. A bit, bit pricey. Uh, look, before we get into all of that, those those huge stories this week, let's pick up where we left off last week. Uh, David Spears was co-hosting last week. Very happy. You're back, Fran. Always love hanging out with you. But we were talking about the release of the Brereton Report into allegations of war crimes by Australian Special Forces in Afghanistan, which is still landing really in many ways. The Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force recommended 19 current and former soldiers be investigated for the murder of, and it's just a staggering number, 39 civilians and prisoners in Afghanistan and the cruel treatment of two others. Now, uh, the consequences are pretty big. Many politicians, including the Minister for Veterans Affairs, Darren Chester, were quick to offer sympathy for the very many other men and women in the armed forces who were not implicated by the report. There was a lot of that, like, you know, let's not tar all of them. Mm. But there has been a lot of anger about what these people did in our name and the international implications for our defence force, our own sense of pride and the just the harm they caused, again, in our name overseas. Yeah, and a lot of concern and fury and um, trepidation, really, of, of what it all means um, from uh, current and former SAS. Some former SAS, um, including Liberal MP Andrew Hastie, have written about this and they've written about it with great sort of passion. Uh, there's been a lot of soul searching evident here, PK. So we are hearing from a range of voices. One thing that's surprising me, though, PK, is we're not hearing from Australia's Defence Minister in the wake of the Brereton Report. We did get that press conference before the report was handed down with the Prime Minister and Defence Minister Linda Reynolds standing by, in a sense, warning us as a nation to prepare ourselves of what was to come because it would be shocking as it was, and then also outlining the process the government's going to put in place to deal with this going forward. A special prosecutor has been appointed to investigate each allegation uh, to see if it will be taken forward to, to police charge. Charges, and an oversight committee in the Australian Defence Force to look at how the ADF responds to the very many recommendations from the Brereton Report. But since the actual report was handed down, PK, I don't think that our Defence Minister has given a major press conference uh, or even a major interview um, about the implications of this, just about this. And I, I mean, Linda Reynolds has been criticised by some in the past for not being visible enough, but at this moment... I really don't quite understand. I mean, in this case, there is such important reassurances, messaging to be done. I, I would have thought this was this was her moment, really. It, it should be her moment. It's important, I think, to offer political leadership too. I think there's the sense that oh, it's the ADF's job to clean, uh, you know, to fix itself up, to clean itself up. No doubt it is the ADF's job to, to do some of that, um, you know, cultural change. But governments fund the defence force. Governments have to lead as well. You don't have a defence minister just 
you know, for the sake of it, you, no. you need to be doing the work. If they did all the prep and they did, as you say, you know, there was all the prepare yourself for the worst, we're going to take this seriously, and they are taking it seriously. I think the process has been quite robust. We have been lauded, actually, for taking a stance and demonstrating that we will hold people accountable. We will take action when when these crimes are committed. I think it has... She's been missing in action. I think it's a really big problem for the government. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, it's I'm really not problematic. saying... I'm not saying that there haven't been people taking account and, and taking responsibility and giving those reassurances. It's been largely handled by the Chief of the Defence Force and the Head of Army. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, the Veterans Affairs Minister, Darren Chester, came on my program and, and he's been speaking. But I just would have thought that this was there was a role here for the Defence Minister. A big role for the Defence uh, Minister. Anyway, a, PK, mm. a day after we got the Brereton Report, um, that, so that's the, the last Friday, the Friday of a very busy news week, we also, which you do always have to wonder about the timing of that, anything released late on Friday. Well, let's um, just go to that briefly because you go to it. We have to. Yeah, Paul Keating actually was critical of the timing, right, of, of this report you're about to mention into retirement incomes. It was weirdly timed, wasn't it? I mean, well, they had it for a while. They have had it for a while. It's the, just to fill everyone in, it's the Interim Retirement Incomes Review, which was set up to examine the three pillars of our retirement income system, superannuation, the old age pension and private savings. Yes, the Treasurer has had it for a while uh, and people have been calling on it for a while because there's been this sort of um, sense that there was an agenda going on here that the government might use this review in order to dump uh, a, a proposed, not just proposed, a legislated increase in superannuation guarantee, the superannuation levy. It's at 9.5% at the moment. It's legislated to go to 12% by 2025. Uh, there are many within the coalition who've been speaking out over the last 12 months saying it should not be increased. And there are many within Labor, for instance, and within the industry super uh, sector who have been suspicious that the government's been hanging on to this report because it's got uh, another agenda here to not go ahead with that rise. Now, um, it, we did finally get it on Friday. It, the review didn't make recommendations. It released key findings. And on the super, basically the finding generally was that high, high superannuation guarantee contributions mostly come at the cost of lower wage growth. So that fueled suspicion that the uh, the government is going to use this as a Trojan horse, if you like, to, to try and back away from that legislated super increase. And that's caused all sorts of argument and debate since. Argument, debate, it continues and it will continue until the government makes its final call. Look, I, I think the, the report has given those in the government who want to delay or scrap the legislated super increases ammunition of sorts um, to to back down, right? They need, they need material. They need something to back them up. Uh, the problem, though, is there's no evidence that delaying or reducing the increase will lead to the, the higher wages, which is at the centre of the debate. Like they say, you know, they, they want to mount this case, but I'm not, I'm not convinced they've mounted it particularly well yet. I spoke to the Assistant Minister for Superannuation, Jane Hume, about, the, about this issue this week. Here she is. Well, that certainly is a very big deal, isn't it? I mean, undoing legislation that has already been passed is no mean feat. The Prime Minister has made it very clear, though, that that will be a decision that he will take early next year as part of the budgetary process and in light of the circumstances that we face at the time. OK, so warming certainly us up. It is a big deal. It would be a big deal. But, yeah, warming us up. That what she's doing, do you think? Yeah, I think she is absolutely warming us up. Uh, I think they are trying to prepare the ground. It doesn't mean they will 
uh, certainly go there. They will make a political calculation, Fran. They clearly, okay, let me say this. They want to do it. Mm. I reckon that is certain. What's not certain is if they will do it because they have to make a political calculation. And let's bring Scott Morrison in here because he's key. Does he want to have this fight? He's going to make a decision, as she says, early next year, and he will make a political decision, not just a policy decision. He will make a determination about whether he's in a strong enough position to have this fight because he will unleash the mother of all campaigns uh, against his government for making that call. Um, He will make a determination about whether he can win the politics. Now, he's a guy who really backs himself, but he's not an ideologue in my view. And if he makes the calculation that it's just not worth the fight, that there are other issues going on, who knows where the economy's at? If we have another outbreak of coronavirus, there are so many other issues, Fran. I reckon I reckon they haven't made the final call, but they want to do it. That's yeah, clear. I think- I think that's right, and I think you're exactly right. They've put off this decision um, because they can, which suggests that, you know, they haven't quite decided the politics of that exactly as you say. But it's absolutely clear, too, that the politics of it in terms of uh, the position of those who who don't want to go ahead and increase the super guarantee are really being assisted by the what's very, you know, playing out before our very eyes. We are in recession. The economy has been hit hard by the pandemic. You know, in the budget, Treasury said that we're heading for nine percent unemployment by Christmas, very low wages growth. So that sort of adds um, support, if you like, to those arguing that now is not the time to put any further impost on businesses for a start, and nor is it the time to be doing anything that might keep wages down in any way. Now, there's plenty of argument to show, as you, as you mentioned, that you know we haven't been having super increases for the last few years, and nor have we been having wages growth. So where's the proof that one leads to the other? But I think uh, that case has been. Uh, the case for some changes to super did get a boost from a surprising source this week, I thought. Bernie Fraser, who's a former head of the Reserve Bank of Australia, for some time he was uh, uh, one of the public faces of industry super campaign. He's been on the board of several industry super funds. And he came out and he said that um, he thinks there is an argument for low income workers to be able to get early access to some of their super for a home loan deposit. So this is the other holy grail here. It's not just about increasing the rate. It's also about whether you give people, um, you know, a chance to use their own money. That's how the argument goes. It's your money. Why shouldn't you use it to get a house? Um, normally, advocates of super say, compulsory super say, no, it's all about locking it up. It's all about compound interest. That's how it works. If you allow people access to it now, if you open the if you open the chest too early, as Paul Keating would say, you know, you're going to just drain the bath and then people won't have the money for their retirements. But Bernie Fraser coming out at this moment, I thought, was, was really um, quite an interesting intervention. Yeah, an important intervention. Look, the debate will bubble on, Fran, and as I say, it's really the, the politics are yet to be determined, although I do, I do think it gives the Labor movement more broadly, the Labor Party, but also you know the unions, the super funds, every, the movement, the broad movement, um, something to campaign on very strongly in the context of the next election if the government backs down um, and, and changes this legislation that the minister says is already legislated, I think it would be seen uh, as as kind of a, a break of promise or a significant shift and Labor would go super hard on that. Uh, let's see if, you know, how people feel about it because the the mood can shift on it and, you know, I don't think it's clear how, how people feel in the context of a recession and the other kind of economic concerns people that are mounting in people's lives in the wake Mm. of coronavirus. Should we bring our guest in? 
Let's do it. Uh, let's bring our guest in this week. Amy Ramikas is political reporter with The Guardian. Amy, welcome to the party. Hello. Now, Amy, this week Queensland finally announced timetables for reopening the border with New South Wales. Here's the Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk. Dr Young has been in extensive conversations with the New South Wales Chief Officer. Dr Young is now satisfied that they have reached the uh, over the 28 days. So uh, can I say to New South Wales, we uh, welcome you to Queensland from the 1st of December. Queensland will also reopen borders with Victoria on December the 1st. Uh, so it's all happening. It's been a long time coming. This is, re- this is a bit of a game changer, isn't it, for the economy at this time, isn't it, Amy? Uh, I think I think so. I mean, I tried to get home um, a couple of weeks ago, like started booking things and everything was already booked out, I think, in anticipation of this of this um, new change into the border restrictions. But when I went home, when they opened the border for the two seconds in June or July, you know, it was people were basically begging you to stay with them. So there has been a change. But I think we have been working towards this timetable for quite some time. We've known that everyone wants the country to be open by Christmas for some time. We saw Victoria do an absolutely amazing job in overcoming that second wave. So I don't think anyone is too surprised by this. Amy, I thought we had a nationally agreed definition of a hotspot and how to respond to one. And yet what we see and what we saw in South Australia was that, you know, the premiers won't hesitate to close borders if they think they have to. The whole point of a nationally agreed definition is you don't sort of come down and and just sort of whack them shut like that. You do something um, that's basically done in stages, don't you? What's going on? Where are we at here that they don't (laughs) shut the borders at the first whiff of grape shot? I think the only thing we actually have a national definition on uh, is the Federation. That's it. That's the only (laughs) thing that we actually have a definition on. And under the Federation... And WA is not so sure about that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) well, WA is still a work in progress on that one. But under the Federation, states can do whatever they want. And we have seen that time and time again with with the COVID response. Now, I think it's really interesting what's happened with borders because we did have that two months where everyone was in lockstep. There were agreements and disagreements which were hashed out in the National Cabinet so that by the time they came and faced uh, the public, everyone was on the same page. But then we started to see borders be politicised. And you could see that with the federal government when they started pushing uh, for states like Queensland and Western Australia to start doing what they wanted. And you kind of got to the point where you saw the premiers realise that if anything went wrong, the federal government would not have their back. Like if anything went wrong with the COVID response in those states, and we saw that with Victoria, you would see an instant reaction from the federal government sort of pointing fingers and saying, this is your fault. And I think that that politicisation of the health response has seen very, very cautious premiers who the, the instant that there could be some sort sort of threat to the health of their of their state or to their populations, they just slam those borders shut because it's easier to manage keeping everyone happy at home than it is to keep the Prime Minister happy. Well, that's right, though. There's as much politics in that state response, too. Well, there was certainly politics in it. Um, you know, there was state election coming in Queensland. A lot of people thought that Alexa- uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk's position was about the timing of that. So it's been 
um, popular at home politically to keep the borders shut too. So there's a lot of politics getting away in the way of all this, which is one reason why we do need to have some experts designing some protocols to be followed, don't we? Otherwise, how are, you know, how are tourism operators and airlines and people living their lives trying to work it's out what's planning, going to happen? It's about planning, right? And if you can't yeah. plan, you can't do anything. Well, absolutely. But on, on the flip side of that, Queensland's response is guided by the Chief Health Officer, Dr Jeanette Young. It's it's actually the True. law in Queensland. So under the Public Health Act in Queensland, which is different to the other states, it is the Chief Health Officer who makes these decisions. And of course, the government of the day has influence and can make recommendations, but it actually is a public servant in those cases who is making the decisions. So I think there's something that needs to be worked out in the future and in what actually is the protocol with this. Do we allow states to do what they want? The Federation says yes. Uh, and, and in that case, how do we come to these nationally agreed definitions mm. when you have people who are worried about their own unique situations? Not every state is New South Wales. I mean, when you look at a state like Western Australia or Queensland, you have quite spread out populations. You have a lot of travel that goes on in Queensland. I mean, I've said this before, but Brisbane is close to Sydney than it mm. is to Cairns. You can't have the same sort of health response immediately in a place like Queensland where you can in New South Wales. It's pretty easy to lock down New South Wales and to do that sort of contact tracing and all of that gold standard stuff. You can't just copy and paste that into the other jurisdictions. Mm. And I think the pandemic has kind of revealed that. Look, South Australia's outbreak was a reminder, I think, of the inherent risks in hotel quarantine and the system there, particularly combined with insecure work, which has become an issue. They have now introduced some changes. The Victorian government, after you know the, the, the catastrophe of hotel quarantining in Victoria, has also uh, cha- really fundamentally shaken up its system for, for the restart in December. But there is now, Amy, a bigger discussion about whether really hotel quarantining is the right fit um, at the next stage of the pandemic, given a lot of the problems we've seen stem from hotel quarantine. And at the same time, some of these bungles or whatever we've seen mean that all of these Australians who want to come home and, and the government's promise that a lot of them would come home, that's inevitably going to slow it all down. So there's actually some real issues around all of that, right? There absolutely is. But I mean, and, and you've both touched on this on your shows during the week, insecure work it has been a problem and that's been another uh, focus of this pandemic of, of what happens when we have people doing these absolute crucial jobs like, you know, cleaning, keeping the supermarkets manned, childcare, security, who are not able to make a living just from doing one job. Usually they are contractors or they work at several centres or, you know, they're just they're having to do three or four jobs to make the same wage that, you know, most people take for granted living on with just one job. I think, though, also we have to maybe take a step back and realise that if medical professionals who know how to use PPE have been still getting COVID because, you know, it's it's a virus and these things happen, I don't know how we suddenly think that, you know, security guards who have not had to have training in this their entire lives suddenly make mm. mistakes. I think we have to be a little bit more forgiving that there are going to be mistakes in these systems. 
I think that, that, again, this needs to be a broader conversation. And I think that the idea of, you know, putting all of the hotels in outback Australia or, you know, quarantining them again, that is a little ridiculous. And we're starting to stray into how many liberties are we freely giving up in response to this pandemic. But on the same token, we just need to have governments take responsibility for when things go wrong and just go, you know what, we should have given some extra wages here. We should have made it easier for people just to work one job. We should be more forgiving that people don't necessarily naturally know how to use PPE or washing your hands every half an hour. And we haven't seen that yet. No, but also, I mean, what we saw was an emergency response, essentially. We stood that system up very quickly because we needed to. It's remained in place. Is it now time? Seems to be there's more more and more sensible people saying, well, okay, that was then. This is now. It's it's revealed the problems and they've been revealed with, you know, tragic and spectacular um, effect, really. Is it is it sensible still to keep everyone who comes in, because that's where the virus is going to get into the country, in, you know, big crowded city hotels? Is that the best way? way to do it? What's the way to do it? And and going to your point of workforce, the recommendation might be, well, why don't we train a workforce and make sure that trained workforce is where the people are? It doesn't have to be in the inner cities. Uh, it doesn't have to be the remote outback either. It could be Dubbo or, or places like that. Um, but we need to have a bit more flexibility in the system. And we did have that inquiry, you know, where they they suggested it might be time now to look at what's happening overseas using electronic wristbands, for instance, for people can can stay at home for their two weeks. Um, some, some solutions like that so that we can start to get a bit more flexibility rather than just putting everyone in hotels that weren't built for this purpose are in the most heavily populated areas of our major cities. And, uh, you know, that's where all the risk is. Well, absolutely. But we also know that the the health, the National Health Committee that's had a look at this stuff has, has said that's not going to work for Australia. I mean, in the last National Cabinet press conference, Scott Morrison all but basically said, oh, the wristband thingy, the ankle thingy, yeah, we're not looking at that anymore. And it was, you know, it was one line and it was just kind of wiped that we're keeping the current arrangements. And I think part of that is because if you bring somebody in from overseas and say, okay, you can quarantine at home, are you then making their entire family quarantine Mm. at home with them, then they can't go out and kids can't go to school and there's all of these other problems that that stem from that. So yes, I totally agree with you. We need to have a look at the program. It was stood up, you know, in a matter of days and that doesn't necessarily mean it's perfect, but I also don't think that we need to have absolute panic stations just yet. Okay, let's let's park the panicking. Um, And let's finish on an issue that's been a attracting a fair bit of controversy. Former Finance Minister Matthias Cormann is campaigning to be the new head of the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. He's been doing a bit of uh, travelling to lobby for his role and the federal government has given him the use of the RAAF plane and a team of DFAT advisors. The plane costs four grand an hour. And the costs are racking up, which you'd expect because he's gone to... Lots of countries in Europe, um, the costs are racking up and the Prime Minister is, is right behind it, saying that they're spending the money so that they can win the race, that it's in Australia's national interests. Uh, look, it's getting a little ugly as a debate because uh, Labor's given bipartisan support to Matthias Cormann rising to this role, saying, you know, you want an Aussie in the job and they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to be so um, petty as the coalition has been over Kevin Rudd when he wanted to go for another international role. But, but, 
So they, they say they want it to happen, but they're kind of going, mm, the government has to justify those costs. The costs are getting people a little, well, I've looked at my text line, Amy, and people aren't that happy about the costs. No, I, I could imagine that. And I've never been to Europe, but I think I'm going to jot down um, Matthias's route as the first time that I do get to go because it looks quite lovely. Um, Careful, you might find yourself elected to the OECD before you know it. <laughs> Vote one, Amy. Yeah, eat the rich. Um, no, I I think that this is this is a hard one for Labor, particularly since you know Penny Wong did do a lot of work behind the scenes in convincing uh, Labor to support this, and I can see how it is in the national interest that we do have an Australian at the head of the OECD. And Matthias Cormann is behind the eight ball when it comes to campaigning on this. Um, you know, there's been other countries that have got the jump on this, but what I find more outrageous is that Matthias Cormann is uh, campaigning on a we need to do more on climate and we need to do more on climate change policies. This man helped write the budget two months ago, which does not include any of those policies that he is now talking about. And suddenly we're to believe that he's had this, you know, come to green earth moment where he's like, oh, you know what? This is very important for the future of the planet. I mean, that that is what's really got my goat over this whole thing. Yeah, yeah it's a, diff- <laughs> it's a difficult <laughs> political history to get around, I would think, and the Greens are making sure that all those OECD ambassadors know about it. Ooh, so yeah, that, they that, sure is a, that is a small hurdle. But I just want to take you back, uh, just before we, we finish today, to that, you know, the 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 statement there that it's definitely in Australia's interest to have an Australian as head of the OECD because, you know, this is a coalition government that hasn't been a big fan of the global institutions. (laughs) You know, the PM talked about negative globalism, gave that big Mm -hmm. speech about unaccountable internationalist institutions. That was in the past. We forgot about that. that. That's the past. (laughs) Now we've got the pandemic and, of course, China is is engaged in many of these big, more and more of these um, big multinational globalised uh, institutions. What is it? Why is it seen so much in our interest to have an Australian there at this moment, um, Amy? Do you have a sense of that? Uh, I think because Australia is starting to feel a little unsettled in their position. I mean, we are a middle power. No one's saying that we're one of the global superpowers, but we do hold a very strategic position in the Pacific. And I think having watched the Trump administration go through the last four years and seeing those unsettled waters uh, that have been left, you know, by the Trump administration's wake, I think Australia is starting to pop its head up a little bit and say, hey, guys, we're still here. We're potentially going to be in some future issues um, and it would be nice to be able to pick up the phone and have a chat to some of you about what's going on and I think this is part of it. But I do have to mention also ABC story Natasha Stott-Despoia campaigned for her position in the UN um, Women's Committee and she did that over Zoom, 190 Zoom uh, sessions and she was successful. So I'm not quite sure why we need to be on a plane to do this but that is as they say for the government to answer. It is for the government to answer, um, although you've answered some things too, Amy, So, and you're not the government, you're just Amy. <laughs> well, that's why I can answer some that's things. That's right. Like, blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 my favourite Lithuanian. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Amy, thanks so much. It's been great. <laughs> Thank you. So the bells are ringing. Questions without It's notice. time for question time. The leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased for well, time at least. So maybe not the Leader of the speaker. Opposition, but we do love this every week. This week's question comes from Kathleen. Hi, Fran and Patricia. Firstly, just like to say I'm a huge fan of the podcast, but also I love both of your radio programs. An afternoon briefing is great. Working from home in Melbourne in a pandemic means I get to leave my office and have a cuppa and catch up on the news of an afternoon. 
Anyway, today my question for you relates to the legislated superannuation guarantee. Can you please shed some light on how the government is trying to argue that wages will rise if super doesn't? I know that Tony Abbott certainly argued this, and wage growth has been so stagnant in Australia for the last decade, so I find it a bit confusing. Also, I do find it a bit ironic that um, the government is arguing against this for most of the country, when according to the Parliament House website, senators and MPs receive at least 11% super. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks. Good question. Really good question. Thank you very much, Kathleen, also for listening to our shows, which we always want people to do too, don't we, Fran? Because we do that every day or every weekday. Look, uh, we've already discussed the super debate, and I think we've addressed a lot of the wages questions you had there. But let's just go to your point around politicians and their... You know, pretty handsome superannuation amounts. A pretty good, pretty good deal. Fifteen percent, not bad. Look, I put that to Andrew Bragg, who is one of the main Liberal MPs. He's a senator from New South Wales, who's really, really pushing for uh, you know the abandonment of these legislated increases and changes to superannuation. He is a real spear thrower on this issue, and he said he'd be happy to abandon his you know very cruisy, lovely superannuation amount um, to make it you know fairer. When I put that to him. So that was him. Doesn't mean they're going to do it. But I do think it's a relevant point. Why do they get such a good deal and they perhaps some of them expect uh, regular Australians not to get the same deal? Mm. I, I think that's right. And I think that'll be at the heart of any campaign. As you said, you know, earlier, PK, expect the mother of campaigns if the Prime Minister does try and change that legislated guarantee. Um, but I think where support probably will come in behind Tim Wilson, Andrew Bragg and others is, as we mentioned earlier, that people be able to perhaps get access to some of their super early in life, particularly, um, you know, younger Australians. It's a struggle to rent in our capital cities. It's certainly a struggle to buy and to get the deposits together now that you have to get. There's that handy pot of money. I think that might be where we see movement before we see anything else or support growing in the population anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. That's it for the party room this week. Excellent to have you back, Fran. Terrific to be back, Pika. You know I love it. Till next week then. See ya. See ya, Pika. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.